welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today it is my honor to be joined by Ense Ufat. She is the CEO of the New Georgia Project. This is an organization dedicated to registering and engaging voters across Georgia. Georgia has been in the news. Ense, welcome again, and thank you for passing judgment with us. Hi, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. So we are recording this episode just a few days, although it feels like maybe 100,000 years, after the Georgia runoff elections, and both Democrats won, and there will be no recount. These were two resounding wins. This will affect the balance of power in the Senate, because now Vice President-elect Kamala Harris will be the tie-breaking vote. First question, just were you surprised by the outcome? Um, I was not. Uh, it is quite literally the plan that I wrote. <laughs> um, and uh, what we have been working for, uh, for the better part of two years. Um, I would say if I am a little shocked, I think it is that uh we indeed had the most secure elections that we've had in Georgia's history and that uh, we were successful in keeping the Secretary of State and the President's thumb off of the scale um, and that I'm reasonably certain that every vote will be counted. That's the part that surprised me because it's what we wanted. uh, It's what we organized for. Is what we recruited and trained nearly 5,000 volunteers for. And, you know, you can't always be certain that it's going to happen. So tell me about, you said, I, I wrote the playbook, I wrote the plan. What specifically was the plan? Because I have a feeling a lot of people are going to try and replicate this. I know. So, I mean, it's the idea that, one, um, a lot has been written about Georgia's demographic shifts um, and the changes that are happening in the state. But quite frankly, uh, demographics alone do not equal destiny. So the plan was to, one, uh, stress test Georgia's election system, identify all of the weaknesses in Georgia's elections infrastructure, including the direct attacks on our elections infrastructure by our Secretary of State and other partisan actors. Um, It was to find where the votes were, where the potential votes were, where the surge opportunity was. register and add half a million black and brown and young Georgians to the voter rolls, make sure that they stay on the voter rolls, um, and then launch a massive get out the vote effort that started on MLK Day in 2020 that would see to it that they showed up and voted in June, in August, in November, and in the January runoffs. June was our primaries. August were also primaries. November was the general and January was the runoff election. And so the sort of central conceit of the work of the New Georgia Project is to build super voters. Uh, These are people who vote in every election in which they're eligible. Again, and to ensure that every voter, every election um, is uh, sort of more than just rhetorical. Um, and to bring underrepresented groups uh, to the democracy table. 
How do you do that? How do you build a super voter? We're still working on it. Uh, but I think that we have gained a lot of insight. Um, so I think part of it is, you know, the way that we train our organizers is that they have twice as many ears as they do mouths. And so it's absolutely important for them to listen, um, that people will tell you what their hopes are and what their fears are for themselves, for their families and their communities. Um, and that, you know, they will tell you the, about the change that they want to seek or the change that they're seeking. Uh, and we connect, we, you know, over multiple conversations, over multiple organizing events, we work to connect the act of voting to the change that they want to see for themselves. Um, and we build relationships. I think we work a lot with institutions. And so, you know, we are in the Black Belt, we're in the Deep South, also known as the Bible Belt. Uh, we've built a network of about 1,100 churches, synagogues, and mosques uh, that do this sort of voter registration, civic engagement work as a part of their uh, faith and, and in their faith tradition um, and sort of an expression of their faith in public life. And yeah, it's not tied to a specific election or a specific candidate or a specific political party. Uh, the idea that elections are opportunities for us to test the power that we're building um, in our communities uh, to make Georgia better, uh, to make Georgia a place where our families can do more than just survive, that they can thrive, uh, and getting people again to believe uh, in our democracy and believe in the power of their own vote and believe in their power to change the, their circumstances. Uh, and so again, it's much, much more transformational than transactional. I would argue that the way that we've run campaigns, particularly uh, large campaigns, national campaigns have been very transactional, uh, particularly as it relates to black voters and young voters and Southerners, right? Your favorite presidential campaign or campaign committee or political party sort of comes in with street money, finds their, um, you know, favorite spokesperson or leader and says, you know, come join me on stage. We'll shake hands. We'll do the victory sign. I'll move you some resources. You turn out your people and, you know, whatever happens, happens. And yeah, I think that super voters are, you know, the people who really hold up uh, who really run our democracy and getting them to and making black people and Latinos and Asian Americans and young Georgians and queer folks, super voters gives me a reasonable, like allows me to be reasonably assured that every time that there's an election, every time that the people are deciding on who will co-lead with us or deciding on policy um, that the voices of voters of color, uh, the voices of queer folks and people living with disabilities uh, is included in the decision-making process. And we have a fighting chance of getting something that works for us and our families. 
So this is going to sound like the beginning of a joke, but you walk into a church, a temple, or a mosque, and you (laughs) make your pitch for registering and voting. What's the most persuasive pitch you think that you can make? Because I talk to my students about this, and they, by the time they get to me and they're taking a class by me, they're registered and they're going to vote. But not all their friends are. And I'm not just talking about the youth vote, but so what's the one of the most persuasive things you can say when going into, for instance, a place of worship to get people to register and be part of the system, be a super voter? Yeah. So that is what I mean when I talk about the transactional nature in which we do politics. I would start by asking them questions about what they care about, right? Like, and how they see themselves and how, what problems they see in their community that they want to solve, or what are the ambitions for themselves? Like, what do our leaders need to know, right? Like, oh, you think that, um, I don't know. For example, they're building two new nuclear power plants in Georgia, uh, and there haven't been any new nuclear power plants built anywhere in the United States in 30 years. Um, that you know, you actually, your people are actually from New Orleans, and so you actually came to Georgia 15 years ago because you you all were forced to evacuate from Hurricane Katrina. And, and that you sort of know and understand um, that there are things that you would love to our elected officials to talk about um, as it relates to climate change uh, and extreme weather events, because you feel it in your body. You miss New Orleans. You can't go back because of what's happened to the housing market. Right. And so then I get to talk to that person about the Public Service Commission um, and the role that they play in regulating utilities, the role that they play um, in sort of protecting Georgia's waterways and how uh, because nobody goes to their meetings and because all of the people who are on the board are really, really old white Republican dudes who care nothing or know nothing about your priorities. And while like the presidential election is on the ballot, that Yo, you really need to check out what's going on with these public service commissions because they are out here wiling, that they are out here doing the work of energy companies and completely ignoring um, what we know has happened, is possible, will happen again. Um, and so, again, it starts by listening. Um, we're trying to transform how people think about the vote. Um, and, and so oftentimes it's not just a rap. Um, what I also learned is that, you know, at the core of the work of the new Georgia project is a very aggressive research agenda. And so, you know, there are people, and you know, I live in Atlanta, uh, what is known as the cradle of the civil rights movement of the 1960s. You can't go and shake a stick in the city without hitting someone who claims that they marched with Martin Luther King. Um, my former board chair, Raphael Warnock, uh, is the pastor uh, at Ebenezer and has been for the past 15 years. Uh, which is Martin Luther King's church. And so it's a big deal um, here in Georgia. Uh, But 
when we tell people like you should register to vote because your ancestors died for the right to vote, our research shows that not only is it not effective, but I also know that it's not true. Like people were murdered by the state, but they weren't like voluntarily laying down their lives. They were murdered by vigilantes and it was ignored by the state because black folks sought the franchise. And so like, let's not dishonor their memory by making it seem like they, you know, willingly laid down their lives for the right to vote. They were stolen from us. And so one, I want to make sure that we never tell people lies about the loss of life and how it happened. Um, But also two, our research shows that that's not the most motivational message at all. That if you actually talk to young people about the changes that they want to see in their lives today, um, that that's actually much more, and connecting that to the act of voting, that that's actually much, much more persuasive. So we tell people, um, or I will tell you, we were at the uh, George Floyd protest this summer, registering young people to vote. And they were saying, you know, my vote doesn't matter. Um, You know, they're killing us. We're dying at the hands of the state. Why should I vote? Um, And we explained, like, district attorneys are elected officials, uh, that you have the ability to hire and fire them. But not only that, there's no way you will ever serve on a jury, uh, for example, in an office that involves shooting, uh, if you're not a registered voter. Where do you think uh, Fulton County and Georgia picked their jury pool from? Uh, And so what would happen if you found yourself on a jury? Would you bring your stories, your family, your memories, your organizing experience, your pain, your hopes into the deliberation? Um, Right. Well, you never will have that opportunity if you aren't a registered voter. Uh, So much, much more effective than saying, you know, people sacrificed and lost their lives for the right to vote. And so it really does, I promise that it's not a cop-out, uh, but we really, really are seeking to change how people think about democratic participation and how people think about elections, which is why it's so important that our work is ongoing and year-round, because you can't have this conversation on somebody's porch in October. Yeah, that is so Interesting that it has to start with not let me tell you why this is important, but tell me what's important to you, and then we'll have a conversation about why this is important, that it has to start with listening. And that's a much more work-intensive model, right, as opposed to you got to do this. If you care about X, Y, Z, you got to do this. Okay, here's your card. Um, and, And I know that you spent a lot of time on this part to you know, cultivate new voters, to create super voters. And I also know you spend a lot of time on maybe what's the other part, which is working not just to create new voters and keep those voters consistent, but to reduce ways that we suppress voting. And I'm wondering if you could talk about what you think are the most egregious examples of voter suppression in Georgia. And um, and then I want to talk a little bit about your personal experience dealing with those. I mean, I think it's important for people to know that uh, we had historic 
levels of participation in the November general and in the January runoffs. It's truly remarkable. But I, I don't even think the world knows what black voters and brown voters and young people had to overcome to deliver that historic performance. Um, just in the runoffs alone, the state of Georgia led by our secretary of state cut the number of early voting days, right? So the number of days that Georgians could vote early before the January 5th runoff date uh, was reduced. They cut the number of early voting locations um, in counties all across the state of Georgia, but particularly large counties uh, that had recently flipped uh, that have a sort of Black-led plurality uh, that are the multiracial um, suburban inner ring suburbs around Atlanta. So a place like Cobb County, um, where they cut over half of the polling locations. Um, they entertained hearings and sought to purge almost 350,000 Georgians from the voter rolls in the nine weeks between the November general and the January 5th runoff. They cut the number of drop boxes where Georgians could drop off their boxes, uh, drop off their completed ballots, right, as a way to manage their exposure to the virus. They cut the number of drop boxes they sought to uh, only make the drop boxes available during business hours, which defies the entire premise and like raison d'etre reason for being for drop boxes is that they are convenient for customers who don't make it once the business is closed. Um, and so, you know, we were able to successfully push back against that. Um, they communicated a rule change that said that if individuals or grassroots organizations like ours participated in what we call line warming, right? So if you gave bottles of water to voters or hot chocolate uh, or, you know, left um, brought food trucks or gave people slices of pizza, that we would be criminally prosecuted. Um, um, because of their new interpretation of Georgia law. I mean, not, that, in addition to the disinformation and misinformation, there were, I mean, it, the list goes on and on. And again, these are features. These are the hurdles that Georgia voters had to overcome um, in the nine weeks uh, between the general and the runoff. And that is why the fact that when all is said and done, 85% of the total voters that we saw in the November general showing up to vote in the runoffs is extraordinary. That is extraordinary. And say, how has this work been for you personally? You've worked against voter suppression. How has it affected you personally, and if you've dealt with this, what are some of the biggest challenges in doing this type of work? Well, I mean, how it has affected me personally, my filter is broken. 
and so I think that naturally I'm a very sort of diplomatic person um, and, you know, make it a point to try to communicate in a way that will ensure that I'm understood. Uh, I think that I like naturally lean towards bipartisanship. Um, just because of my personal disposition and all that is gone. (laughs) All that is gone. I see this version of the Republican party as an existential threat, um, to our country, to our democracy. I never expected white supremacy to die a, a quiet death, uh, or a peaceful death. Uh, but the, attacks on the Capitol, the way that the Capitol was breached, the violent rhetoric, um, and the the Republican Party leaders that fanned those flames uh, should be held personally responsible for the lives that were lost, for the damage that was lost. Uh, I have very little patience these days for hypocrisy, uh, for both siderism. Yesterday, these terrorists, these white domestic terrorists, uh, broke into the Georgia State Capitol and tried to kidnap the Secretary of State. And on the other side of the Capitol, there were 23 young people who were protesting um, the fact that Kenosha, Wisconsin, none of the police officers, no one, in fact, was going to be held responsible for the murder of Jacob Blakeman. The man was shot in the back seven times, and but no one is responsible for it. And so there were 23 young people who held a candlelight vigil. Um, at the same time, while uh, these they were planning an insurrection at the Georgia State Capitol, those 23 young people were arrested for their peaceful protest. Meanwhile, folks broke into the Capitol with the stated intent of, of kidnapping the Secretary of State or bringing their grievances, I should say, to the Secretary of State. And they were all at home, in bed, sleeping the same night. And so the way that has impacted me is that my natural disposition to try to bring all people together is being eroded. And I feel like for my own safety and the safety of like vulnerable people in our communities, that I have to be much more sharp in my analysis, much more sharp in my critique, and much more clear and vocal in stating what these threats to our democracy and threats to democratic norms mean for our way of life. And so you just brought up some of the violence that's happening, not just in Georgia, but in the nation's capital. And I'm wondering, as somebody who works with voters, who works to try and make people voters, to try and make people consistent voters. Well, first question, what were your first few thoughts when you saw the Capitol is breached and that at first we called these people protesters? It is so disrespectful, (laughs) like so disrespectful uh, to compare this terrorist attack to anything that resembles protesting. Um, So that was my initial thought. And my initial thought was, how is this happening? 
um, where are the police? And then I realized, oh, the police were right alongside them, opening up barricades, ushering them in, giving them directions to speak to uh, Schumer's office and giving them direction to Pelosi's office. And then uh, my second set of thoughts was, you know, how is anybody supposed to take their political agenda seriously with all this white on white violence? And then my third thought was, I really hope that we have a, a mechanism to expel the members of the House and the Senate that stoked the flames uh, that were objecting to the certification of the certification of the presidential and the vice presidential vote. That I hope that there are consequences for the dangerous and violent rhetoric uh, that our so-called leaders have been trafficking in, because this is on their heads. How would you tell? President-elect Biden, Vice President-elect Harris, here are the things that I would do if I were in the administration to try and stop this level of violence. And maybe it is what you said. Maybe it's hold our representatives accountable for peddling in lies, conspiracy theories, falsehoods, for getting up on the in the Senate floor, in the House chamber, and saying there was something fraudulent about this election when we all know that that wasn't the case. How can we talk to voters who are watching this happen, who are watching the world say to us, hey, everybody, are you okay in America? I mean, this is a huge stain on our country. And I'm wondering what, this is very broad, but what would your guidance be going forward? I mean, I would take a a page out of uh, Mitt Romney's playbook. These are lies and you need to go home to, you know, Alabama's second congressional district or whatever your um, constituencies find themselves and tell them the truth. Tell them that Joe Biden was elected. Tell them that, uh, you know, that America is changing. Um, Tell them that Trump is a lying liar who lies. Uh, and that he is a, a wannabe tyrant, um, and that much of this is designed uh, to, you know, make sure that he can avoid jail time because private citizen Trump doesn't have nearly the number of protections that President Trump has. Um, yeah, here's the thing disinformation is dangerous. And the problem is that the Department of Defense and and the State Department and all of these folks who set policy and execute U.S. policy as it relates to foreign entities and other sovereign states know this. They know that countries are less and less likely, less and less willing to invest in hot wars. And so cold wars and information wars and disinformation campaigns are as destabilizing as some of the hot war tactics that were used in decades past. And now those tactics are being deployed by domestic actors and our elected officials, and that they're still just as dangerous, even if they are coming out of American mouths. 
And I would encourage Vice President Harris and President Biden to um, deal with them as the threats that they are. And say thank you so much for your time. Thank you for educating us. Congratulations on your victory. And we hope to talk to you soon. Uh, Jessica, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing, like asking questions that are interesting. Thank you for your interest in our work. Uh, I really appreciate it. Listeners, thank you for passing judgment with us. This is our second episode on the Georgia runoffs because they were so consequential. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the show on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, and say on Twitter at N S E U F O T. We wish you the best, and we'll talk to you soon.